Hello and welcome to the Perfect Gentleman podcast. This is episode 11. This is the third week in May. I hope you're having a fantastic day. I am Zach Falconer-Barfield, founder of The Perfect Gentleman, and alongside me is... James Marwood. Good to speak to you again, Zach. How are you? Good to speak to you too. I'm very well, sir. Very well indeed. Slowly getting thawed out towards the end of May now. We're hopefully seeing the the tail end of the horrible weather and, and summer beckons in the distance it does it's um it's been a long time coming yes it has I, i'm just hoping that our summer is going to be really good in england this year my parents who live in spain have been taunting me they live in the right in the very far south near Cartagena, but they just had a a week in a in a resort somewhere and um, they've been taunting me with tales of 22 23 degree days and beautiful balmy evenings just yes this is not a fair this is not fair i hope wherever you ever you are in the world and you're listening to this you're enjoying some balmy sunny weather and uh, don't make us jealous <laughs> Yes. So uh, what are we talking about this week? Rory's going to talk to us again about table manners, about some of the basics there. Excellent. And then we're going to talk a little bit about cookery and cookery books. Do you have an interview today? Yeah, we have the second part of our interview with uh, the author Guy Fraser Sampson, and then from the desk of about the season here in the UK and book festivals, and then perhaps even hopefully tentatively talk a little bit more about summer. Brilliant. Let's hand over to Rory and he can talk us through some table manners. Greetings and welcome to The Perfect Gentleman. My name is Rory Bulger, 2PG and etiquette and fine dining expert, and today I'm going to give you my second instalment on table manners. Rather than give you a dry list of do's and don'ts, I'm going to set a scene for you in order to make the information more easy to absorb. The scene that we're setting is that of a formal restaurant for an evening meal. The first thing that you must do is research the type of restaurant that you're booking. Obviously, a restaurant to which you're taking a date would be different from the one to which you're bringing your family or a business acquaintance. You would need to have a look at the restaurant's website, make sure that you understand what type of food it serves, and ensure that that is suitable for all of the guests that you're bringing. Make sure you think about how people are getting to and from the restaurant. Think about public transport links, if in the centre of a city. Or if not, think about how easy it is to drive to, how long it will take people to get there, and if they need to take a taxi after having had a drink, how easy it will be to find one and how much it might cost. Also think about how far ladies might have to walk, either getting to or from the restaurant, or if on a date you're considering a stroll after the meal, think about the ladies in heels and how easy it might be for them to get around. When making your booking in the restaurant, As well as confirming the times and date, make sure that you give the restaurant an idea of the number of people that will be in your party, as well as any dietary or other requirements that your guests might have. When you arrive, reconfirm this information with the restaurant, firstly to ensure that they have received that correctly, and secondly so that your guests know that they are being looked after. The perfect gentleman will always be conscious of and considerate towards any ladies in his presence. Upon arrival, help the lady with her jacket unless there's a member of staff there to do that for her. When you've found your table, help the lady with her seat. And if she needs to stand or return to the table at any point, stand with her as a sign of respect. When it comes to ordering, invite others to place their orders first. Ladies, and then the gentleman, and then place your own order. There is nothing that makes a woman feel uncomfortable more than a man deciding what she's going to eat on her behalf. 
never fall into this trap, it comes across as incredibly arrogant and overbearing. Unless you already have another arrangement in place, when settling the bill, it is always expected that the person who invites is the person who pays. Tip generously if the service deserves it. In the UK, a 15-20% to tip is considered generous, and a 10-12.5% to tip is considered standard. If you do feel the need to complain, do it discreetly away from your guests to avoid any discomfort. Always remain polite and calm when complaining, and try and talk directly to the manager. As always, more information on this or any other topic can be found on our website, www.theperfectgentleman.tv, through our online magazine or our books. Thank you, Rory. I feel that I know more every time I listen to you and every time I sit with you and make sure that I always keep my table manners spick and span. Our wonderful partners, the English Cream Tea Company, deliver a fresh take on tradition. The English Cream Tea Company offers quintessentially British gifts. Choose from the freshly prepared afternoon tea hampers to be hand-delivered right to your door throughout mainland UK, or select from a range of gift vouchers. There are also postable gifts of award-winning chocolate brownies, tea, delicious shortbread, and even cheese-please tuck tins with delicious cheese scones and chutney. After all, the perfect gentleman needs to be able to send the perfect gift, whether it's to say thank you, congratulations, or season's greetings. And the English Cream Tea Company supplies that, complete with your own personalised gift message. Who do you know who would not love the gift of afternoon tea? So go to theenglishcreamtea.com for a charming touch of British indulgence. The next section is our culinary gentleman section. So we, we do this Excellent. once every couple of months. We do a culinary gentleman section. Um, mm-hmm. And as it's our book month, it's still book month, we're going to talk a little bit about cookbooks. I have a, a lot of cookbooks. Because so uh, yeah, you're, you're another cook like me, aren't you? I don't know if I'm that good, but I, I enjoy it. I'm enthusiastic, if perhaps not especially skilled. But the point about cooking, as we talked about in like style, is enthusiasm is half the battle. Yes, it is. So you might not be technically fantastic, but if you're enthusiastic and you you make stuff and people eat it, mm-hmm. then that qualifies you as the as a cook in my book. It's one of those essential skills I think everybody should have, especially a gentleman, should know how to prepare a meal for any occasion, really. I mean, I was very lucky. I um, uh, My mother was a trained cordon bleu chef. My mum and my uh, grandparents, they had a, a couple of restaurants. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my youth, uh, my teenage years were um, were in restaurants when I was wanting to earn pocket money. My mm-hmm. mother would make me work in the restaurant, chopping 50 kilogram sacks of carrots and peeling potatoes and um, washing up and all that sort of stuff. And as I got older, I did more and more stuff and, you know, sous chef and learned to cook from her. I learned to cook really because my mum used to suffer, not, not now, but she used to suffer quite badly with arthritis. And so from being seven or eight years old, I used to do quite a lot of the cooking when she was suffering. So she'd tell me what to do and I'd do it. She learned from her mum and her mum and her mum and so on in that way. So I've never been formally trained any of this, but it's fun. I do enjoy cooking. No, cooking's great and experimenting and learning. And, and nowadays we have lots of resources for cooking, lots of online resources mm-hmm. and, and food programs are fantastic, especially in the UK. BBC puts out a plethora of mm. informative food programs, which I am frequently sitting down and watching, but I'm never going to appear on MasterChef. That's my rule. No, I enjoy watching it, but I wouldn't want to put myself through that. I've got a few suggestions for cookbooks that one should have on one shelf and one should look at some classics mostly classics actually and then a couple more modern ones and then uh, a little tribute to one of my cooking heroes first book 
weirdly, my go-to book whenever I need to know something is Mrs. Beaton's Household Management. I know this sounds very strange. Uh, it was written by Mrs. Beaton, of course, in 1861, and it's still relevant today. I must admit, I have a bookmark in mind for cooking times. Yeah, weights of cooking times. So the weights are the measures maybe a, a little mm. foreign to you. The cooking times for certain recipes, things like Yorkshire pudding or old school classic stuff mm-hmm. that you kind of think, oh, how do you do that? Just go to Mrs. Beaton's. Yeah. It's still published today. You can pick up an old copy for about £15. But it's just a classic. Pick it up and read it, and then you kind of go, oh, I didn't know that, or I didn't know this, or that's useful. Mm-hmm. Every two gentleman chef should, uh, gentleman cook should have on his bookshelf. I think so. I have my own copy for years. I use my mum's, and she has several, I think, of different vintage. It is a classic. Definitely ones that you should have on your shelf. Another classic which is probably the quintessential French cookbook, Mm -hmm. is Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking. So Julia Child uh, was a chef. Mm -hmm. She wrote this amazing book. Uh, There was a movie made out of it, which I think um, Meryl Streep was uh, the star of. But yeah, it's a great book. Some of the recipes are quite complicated, but French cooking is the essentials. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things that you should know as a a good chef. So I will suggest that that Mastering the Art of French Cooking by Julia Child is one you should have on your bookshelf as well. Splendid. And the last of that sort of classic go-to book, just is always useful mm-hmm. to have on your shelf, is The Joy of Cooking by Irma yep. Rombert. It's one of those books that you're handed to if you go off to university or something like that. This, this yep. is what you should take with you, uh, son or daughter of mine, and, and mm-hmm. off you go, and you can pretty much find anything. It's like Mrs. Beaton's. It's got a bit of everything. I don't actually have that. One of the guys I shared a house with at university did, and I cooked a few things using it. It's great. Definitely one one to have in the bookshelf. And a couple of more modern ones, I would suggest one of Nigel Slater's ones. He's not a chef, he's a cook. Does some great interesting recipes. So I would go for The Kitchen Diaries. It's one of my favourite ones of his. But any Nigel Slater book's generally quite good. The recipes he comes up with are quite simple and quite easy to do. The original How to Eat by Nigella Lawson. One of my favourites. Now famous uh, worldwide, but twenty almost 20 years ago when the book came out, she wasn't. Mm-hmm. As famous as she is now. I think it was the first one. Um, I can't remember what you call it. She has a book which is all about very quick, easy recipes. Yes. I refer to that one all the time. She's a great chef. The only thing you have to watch out with is is she, she like uh, another chef, James Martin. They do like their butter, their chocolate, yes. full fat cream and um, various other things. So it's not one of those things if you're a darting person. A good, good Nigella book is always good to have. And then one that's kind of a little bit more modern again and a bit more challenging mm-hmm. is The Big Fat Duck Cookbook by Heston Blumenthal. Oh, I've not read it. It's much more challenging. As you would expect. It's about the showmanship of cooking. Okay. It's not the one that you kind of go to first. But mm-hmm. there are some good tips and tricks in there. If you're doing a dinner party or something that you want a little bit more pizzazz for, mm-hmm. um, then I would suggest that one. So that's an interesting choice. I'll have to give that a go. Just one for an aside. We did France, one for Italy, because Italian cooking is so important. The Essentials of Classic Italian Cooking by Marcella Hazan. That is a, is kind of Julia Child did for French cooking. Marcella Hazan did for Italian cooking. So it's classic Italian cooking, but fantastic and well worth the picking up. And then just my homage, because uh, I find him amazing and interesting and a character. Uh, there is the British cook who sadly passed away about um, seven years ago now, Keith Floyd. Yes, indeed. Keith Floyd was kind of the first modern 
a celebrity chef, television personality and restaurateur, certainly of the modern era. Uh, he sort of hit British television in the early 80s, and he was notorious for his uh, <clears throat> consumption of wine... Whilst cooking. ...at every opportunity. He was a very dapper man, always very well-dressed, yep. doing uh, travel ogs and uh, cookery schools, mm-hmm. and cooked in some of the most amusing and interesting places. He always cooked out in the open. He was always either in a kitchen of a restaurant that he'd visited or out in the middle mm-hmm. of the bay on the, a fishing village somewhere. He was always cooking outdoors. He was charming and funny, and what I always liked about him is... If it went wrong, sometimes frequently did, he would just go, okay, well, that's gone wrong. I'll fix it and almost show you how to fix it whilst he was doing it. Now, because we have these pristine things and it's all worked out and it's all organized and, you know, most food and cookery programs are so beautifully done you don't get that sense of oh my god it's gone completely wrong how the hell do i make it better or he would go well that's not the way it should look (laughs) let's start again or you know you felt like you knew him and you felt like Mm -hmm. you would cook like him if you haven't watched him i'm sure you can pick up uh, episodes of floyd's uh, cookery adventures on various media channels Uh, watch a couple of episodes of uh, floyd traveling the world and cooking in unusual places great suggestions there do you have any uh, cookery uh i had a little look at my shelf in the kitchen in the ones i tend to refer to the most i really like hugh fernley whittingstall's books some of which are a huge sort of tomes, but he does one called River Cottage Every Day, which has some really good recipes. His pizza recipe is spot on. I use that one a lot. Also, because my other half is Brazilian, she knows some recipes she learned as a girl, but I picked up a book by Fernando Farah called The Food and Cooking of Brazil, which is fantastic. And I think Brazilian food is underappreciated. You know, most Brazilian restaurants you go to are the churrascarias. You know, it's the barbecue. It's all meat, meat, meat. And that's great as far as it goes. But Brazil has this really rich tradition of spiced sort of curry-like dishes and stews and baked goods and things like that that you just don't get anywhere outside of little brazilian cafes or brazil i would suggest that the food and cooking of brazil and then the final one which is a reference book more than anything else and i don't know if you've ever heard of it do you have a biro book yes yes so biro is or was an old english flower company from newcastle but they still publish this biro recipe book it's like a little pocket diary sized book with simple baking recipes but it's got all of your basic proportions in for cakes for scones for pancakes for yorkshire puddings anything like that anything any traditional dish with flour there's a recipe in there what's quite sweet about it is you to get one you have to send off a a check or postal order and wait for a couple of months it's delightful but it's such a useful book i like that it's just really lovely simple these are all the things you can do with flour good if you're prepping for the great british bake-off that's a dangerous television program to watch (laughs) it is a very dangerous television program (laughs) for you to watch yes so any recommendations for cookery books uh that you would use or um your cookery heroes or anything else that you want to talk to us about please feel free drop us an email at inquiries at theperfectgentleman.tv or contact us on social media whether that be Facebook, Twitter, Instagram we're all the P gentlemen that's the Mm -hmm. P, the letter P gentlemen on all those social media channels do contact us we like hearing from you good stuff Trundling along, back to the Corinthian Hotel now for our second part of our interview with uh, Guy Fraser Sampson Excellent. I'm reviewing his book next in next week's episode Mm -hmm. uh, but we get to ask Guy our ten gentlemanly questions 
So uh, um, your latest book is out now. Yes. Death in Profile, which we have here. Death actually. in Profile. How did that come about? I'd always wanted to write some detective fiction. I was always in search of a theme, an idea, and gradually various ideas coalesced. The first is I've always been a tremendous fan of Hampstead. I think it's one of the most picturesque and magical areas, certainly of London. Yes, definitely. And certainly, and, and where I would live if I could afford it. So there's also a certain degree of wish fulfillment in setting my fictional universe in Hampstead because it's where I'd like to live myself. And the other thing that, that came to me was being a great reader, um, reading a huge number of books. I just, was just getting very fed up with the number of times I would pick up a modern detective story and lay it aside after a chapter, thinking, I, I really just don't want to read this. I don't really care about what happens to these characters. I don't think it's particularly well written. So I wanted to produce something that was well written, and for me that means really harking back to the golden age of detective writing between the wars. So. Not really for me to say, but I would I would say that the style of the book is probably fairly closely similar to somebody like Niall Marsh or Marjorie Allingham or somebody like that. I wanted to create a team of detectives rather than one central figure. I wanted them to be human beings who made mistakes, so without giving too much away, they do make mistakes in the book. And I wanted them to be ordinary, rounded, likeable human beings so that the reader actually cares about what happens to them. Uh, particularly important as it's the first in a series, so you will follow their fortunes uh, as the characters develop in later books. I just didn't want to, to create another noir detective book with a damaged central character, with a drink problem or a gambling problem or a, or a drugs problem or whatever it might be. I, I wanted ordinary... There are some damaged individuals in the book. Uh, but certainly not to the, in the same extreme way that they get presented in a lot of other modern books. Yes, I think that's very true. We've sort of gone down that track. I mean, I'm, yes. I'm, a, I'm a big fan. I'm a huge fan of detective fiction. And for me, it's that I like that that original noir period, but the, the third American half-boiled detective yes. fiction, the Raymond Chandler's, yes. the Dashiell Hammett's, that kind of period of time for me was always my favourite uh, period of, of, of detective fiction. And um, the late Robert B. Parker as well. The yeah, US. I can remember you recommending Robert B. Parker to me. Yeah, so that was kind of that kind of that, again. But uh, and it's interesting, isn't, isn't it? That detective fiction really is. I always find um, it's about the, the detective or detectives, yes. not really about the the case. Effectively, the case is a vehicle for yes. the characters to to I think express that's right. themselves. And I think where that starts to go wrong, or where that can present problems, is where you have detectives or characters who don't really develop from book to book. Yes. I, I can remember watching Monty Panasar, or listening to Test Match Special, and somebody was describing Monty Panasar, and they said the problem with Monty Panasar is he's played 30 Test Matches once. <laughs> and and, it, 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 it's, and yes. it, it's, it's a bit like you read a Poirot book, for example. The Poirot is the same in each book. There's no progression. Yes. You, you get it, obviously, with, with, with uh, Peter Whimsey and Harriet Vane in the Dorothy L. Sayers books, certainly those in which they feature together. You get a, a developing story. Yeah. But no, I think, as you say, the characters need to develop as much as yes. the, as, as much as the, the yes. for a serial. And books. so what will happen in the Hampstead murders, for example, is it's not just you see them developing going forward into the future. You also find out things about their past, which helps fill in the backstory and helps you understand them as characters. Yeah, and, 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 and we're, we're going to review it uh, in the magazine and on the podcast and all that sort of stuff, so uh, I won't spoil the, 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 the plot or any of the things that are going on, but, but it's very, so far I'm about halfway through, and it's very interesting, and I'm, I'm intrigued by the characters myself so I, I like that and I'm looking forward to the next one and, and you're saying that the next one will change the, f the e yes each for example um, 
there's something in particular you find out about the past of one of the characters that makes you understand much more why they behave as they do. And then, of course, again, it's not really giving too much away. There's there's an ongoing love triangle within the team of detectives, and you also get to to, to see the next round of that, as it were, right. play itself out. Play itself out. Yes, right. I think. Well, of course, it's that great thing. Office office romances yes. are frequent in, mm-hmm. in the world, especially in high intense uh, worlds like police. Yes. Um, being a fan of, did you did you know you were going to write? modern detective fiction because I know you're Lord Peter Whimsey and that kind of thing I, I do enjoy writing period fiction and I think I'm particularly drawn to the period between the wars probably mm. just because that's where so much of my early reading was set um, but to, 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 to write this sort of book particularly using female characters I mean even, even in the 1960s and 70s you know female police officers were not allowed to, to take part in investigations yeah. so it, it, once I decided that I wanted a strong central female character it, it the, the epoch really chose itself. It had to be modern. Okay, excellent. Are you going to go write? Excuse me. Are you going to write a, 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 a sort of between the wars piece? I, it's strange you should say that. I do have a couple of other possible series on the go. Uh, one of which uh, uses the idea of real-life Golden Age writers like Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers investigating crimes as detectives. Oh, nice. Which okay. was always one of the stated aims of the detection club, which they formed, but something they never really got round to doing. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps happily, because they might not have been terribly good at investigating <laughs> real-life crimes. Um, and the other one which I've got on the go is set in the Second World War. Uh, it has a it has an RAF background and, oh, okay. it, and it features almost a Ripley type character. It's, it's, oh, it's a little bit of a Patricia Highsmith type book of a okay. rather psychopathic character who carves this, carves a, a grim passage through other people's lives. Oh, I, I look forward to I look forward to reading those. I, I love the period between the wars. I read a fantastic. Um, non-fiction uh, historical book called The Long Weekend yes. about the period between the, the, yes. the, the First and Second World Wars so <clears throat> amazing stories and amazing tales of and it is a different world I mean it is amazing how much Britain has changed since the 1930s and, and <coughs> excuse me how much the world has changed yes you know, you could do great adventures in those, that period of time, and the world had not been explored. And That's right. You could do fantastic things, and it was in that period of time, ladies were starting to take control of their lives. And yes, yes, and also, you know, the idea of uh, the gentleman detective, I think, was still very credible in the 1930s, whereas I think if you tried to write a... a although I, there's a little bit of a gentleman detective in, in Death in Profile, but if you, if you tried to write the idea of a gentleman detective today, I think you'd be, you'd be laughed out of court. I don't think anyone would take it very yes, seriously. Yes, it would be a very fictional yes. universe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, what's next, what's next for, for Guy? What, what are you up to next? What's the next thing for... Uh, I'm intending to write, hopefully, the first five or six of the Hampstead Murders fairly quickly. Ide- ideally at roughly six-month intervals, something like that. I'm very fortunate in the way I write. I mean, speaking to other writers at, at conferences and festivals, a lot of them rewrite their novels sometimes three or four times. I don't actually have to do that. I find that my first draft is, is usually more or less complete and it can go to the printers more or less as it stands. So I do write fairly quickly. So the challenge really is not so much writing the books, but, but planning them. It's coming up with the ideas and the plots. and Or for me, more importantly, the solutions. Because as I said, I I don't really know how a book's going to end when I start it. And I've already discovered that with detective fiction, that's not actually a terribly good idea. 
Because <coughs> you so, get to a certain moment halfway through the book and you have no idea how it's going to end and you have to go and shut yourself away and drink very strong gin and tonic for a few days while you come up, <laughs> while you wrestle desperately with the various plot issues. What, what's your, what is your writing habit? Because all writers have habits. What's, I, what's your... I prefer to write in the morning simply because I'm an early person rather than a late person and I tend to write for a fairly concentrated burst of about two hours. My target, like most writers, is to produce about 1,500 words a day. For fiction, non-fiction I can write more, non-fiction I can do two and a half or 3,000 words, but fiction is difficult. It's, it's strange to explain, but you, you get to, a, to, after 1,500 words, you just feel played out. It's very difficult then to go on with the same quality. And do you have a, a plotted board out No, now? again, I, probably I should. I'm sure if I'd ever studied, a, gone on a creative writing course, I would have been taught to plot my novels out on, on a sort of operations plan, as you, <laughs> as you suggest, and then I wouldn't have these awful problems that arise with, with the plot, but that's just not the way it works for me. I have to, as I say, create the characters and let them go their own way and sort of just run along and tidy up behind them. Do they, the characters sit with you still? Do you sort of yes. think, oh, oh uh, Collins would do that? Yes, or, or... very much so. Very much so, yes. And I'm, so, in a sense, that makes it that much easier to write. But, yes, you do you do reach a certain level of obsession with your characters. I mean, even though I haven't written any Mappanuccia now for about three years, I, I still find myself imagining what they might do in different situations as I'm sitting in an airport departure lounge or something. <coughs> and so, I, I wouldn't ask you to name the character, but do you associate with one of the characters more strongly than anyone else? I think your characters are always a composite. There's one character which is based almost entirely on a real person, there's one character who is just uh, Bob Metcalf, who I think is just the composite all-round good bloke, the sort, of, the sort of bloke you'd be happy to have a beer with in the pub or chat about football to or whatever it might be. Of the other two characters, I think one of them is probably a combination of Rory Aline, who is Naya Marsh's detective, and perhaps a little bit of Dalgleish okay. and a little bit of me. And, get the, yeah. yeah, and the other one I think is a, is a combination of partly somebody I used to know, again partly a little bit of me, probably the more eccentric parts of me, <laughs> um, and perhaps uh, perhaps a little bit Lord Peter Wimsey. Just a just, just, a, just a dash, just a dash, a, an intriguing just... cocktail of character. <laughs> <laughs> I know which character you're referring to, and I, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. So, um, thank you very much. So, we round off every uh, perfect gentleman interview yeah. with our ten gentlemanly questions. Far away. Are you ready for them? Yeah. So we don't we don't advance give you these. So we want your no. This is a, this is completely spontaneous, viewers. So, <laughs> what makes our first question? So, what makes or embodies a gentleman for you? I think it's somebody who has sensitivity for sensitivity for other people and, and it doesn't really matter who they are I remember there's a passage in Proust where he describes this central character the narrator uh, going to the opera and uh, they're, they're, the aristocrats and the, the wealthy people are, are up in the boxes and the, the nouveau riche are being extremely rude to the attendants at the opera whereas the, the old money is sort of chatting to them as if they were old family friends and I think he actually says, I think Swan actually says to himself that he suddenly realised what makes the difference between being a, a true gentleman and not being a gentleman. And I, I would echo that. I think it's somebody who, who is sensitive to the needs and the potential hurt of other people. I like that very much. So what's the most romantic thing you've ever done? Oh, my word. The most romantic thing I've ever done uh, was probably actually to go with my wife to the Venice Carnival one year. Oh, and lovely. we went in costume to various events, and it's a very long story, but I ended up being crowned king of the carnival at the 
closing event, um, and in order to become king of the carnival, you had to choose two ladies at random whom you did not know um, and compose love poems to each of them. And then um, the lady who got the most poems, received the most poems, got to choose the winner. Uh, and she chose me, and, and my Italian, I used to go to Italy quite a lot on business at the time, and my Italian friends were very excited when I turned up in the Italian newspapers <laughs> as an Englishman as the king of the Venetian carnival. So that's probably, I think, the most romantic thing I've ever And done. a great tale, too. And a, and a great the story. King of the Venetian carnival. I love that. So um, if you could bring one gentlemanly trait into business, what would it be? I think, sadly, it used to be part of business, but no longer is. My word is my bond. I think if you give someone your word, then you should stick to it, no yeah. matter how difficult it becomes. The handshake agreement. Yeah, I think that's what determines your character. Yeah, yeah. I think that's very true. Um, so what element of grooming is most important to you? I'm fanatical about a good shave. Oh, excellent. Absolutely fanatical about a good shave. I have a regime, way beyond a routine. I have a regime <laughs> of all sorts of different toiletries, sort of cleansers and gels and moisture. I have at least three different moisturizers, for example, which I use on different occasions and, and, oh, di and different like situations. Um, Do you have a preferred uh, razor are, or product? Are we allowed to name brands? Yeah, yeah, yes, I'm, I'm very much... I've, I've tried just about every brand on the market over the years, and I've settled very much on the L'Oreal Men Expert range, which I find works very well for me. So oh, good, I, excellent. I, 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 li I like the, uh, the charcoal face scrub before oh, okay. shave, and then the shaving gel, and then they do three very different moisturizers. Excellent. Do you, uh, do you and I shave usually three times. I normally shave down and then up, and then I sort of go over those awkward little bits. Little little but I, I'm, I am, when I say I'm fanatical about a good shave, I am totally fanatical about a good shave. <coughs> I, I, I admire you and wonderful because, because uh, as we talk, 90% of men are never taught to shave. And well, I wasn't. I mean, it, it, but I sort of worked it out for yeah, myself. But 70% of women still shave badly every day. Yes, I think it's a tragedy that you're not taught to shave. Oh, it's wonderful. Back to the life skills. Yes. Um, and what's the razor you use, just out of interest to you? I, I, I just use an ordinary blade. I use the uh, Gillette Mac 3 Turbo, which okay. I find works best for me. Again, I've tried them all, but I just settled on what seems to work best for me. Yeah, it is. It's, as you yeah. always say, it's, it's, it's up to the individual. Yes. You've got to find what works more for you. Yeah. Um, yeah no, I, 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 like you, I'm a fanatical. Once, you know, I'll take a day off, I'm not shaving because yeah. I want the rest of the skin, but... But if I'm shaving, that's I, you know I have my ten minutes. I have to shave every day. I can't. I mean, there, I know there's some people who won't shave at the weekends. The only concession I make is if I'm on holiday, then I tend to shave in the evening rather than the morning. Which I do. But well. I still shave every I day. I don't shave every day, but I shave I shave most days. Yeah. Um, I find that if I shave every single day, I tend to get uh, rash and stuff like that. Oh. So um, that's, that's, that's um, but anyway, so um, um, so name one iconic gentleman for you. Um, I would a fictional gentleman would have to be Lord Peter Whimsey. Obviously. Real life gentleman. The life oh, makes gosh. no difference. Ronald Coleman maybe? Okay. Okay. Very good. Well, what's the most important item in your wardrobe? Ah. Uh. I have a black canali jacket which I love because it's incredibly versatile. You can wear it it's so many you can wear it with a sweater in the winter or you can wear it with a t-shirt or, or an open shirt in the summer. But I'm a I'm a great tie fanatic. I mean I, I really go against the tie here. I know ties are going out of fashion, but I've I've probably got I've probably got close to a hundred ties. 
I, I used to go to Milan on business a lot, and I always used to come back with at least one new tie. Excellent. And I, 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 as you, we, you know, I'm a tie tie man, so I, I'm a big tie man. I, and, and it's weirdly, it's 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 coming in and out of. Fa- it's not out of fashion, and yes. I think with this, people are starting to realise that tie is a good expression of. I'm also a big supporter of cravats, which <laughs> you're preaching to the converted. <laughs> we like that. So, um, so. Uh, why should there be more gentlemen in the world? I think the world needs to be a more gentlemanly place. I think the, we've, we've lost a lot of the, the elegance and, more importantly, the courtesy of the world. Yes. And I think, I think that's very sad. I, we've come, everything's come to be instant and everything's come to be about money. And I, I really don't think it should be. I think that it should be about deeper things and it should be about being pleasant to, to other people. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, so, uh, what key skill should every young gentleman be taught? Apart from shaving. Apart from shaving. I think how to behave towards a lady. Again, this is very much going out of fashion, but opening doors, helping with coats, walking on the outside, all that sort of good stuff. The great, the great modern chivalry coat. Yes, yeah, yeah. indeed. The courtly love. Yeah. Um, okay, wonderful, I like that. Uh, <clears throat> what should a gentleman never be without? Handkerchief, perhaps, has so many uses. After all, <laughs> when a lady bursts into tears, you should always have a clean handkerchief. I think. I, I <laughs> could, I, you're a man after my own heart, guy. <laughs> and then the last question—it's actually more of a statement. So, please, would you finish the sentence? Mm-hmm. A gentleman should always be sensitive to the needs of others. Wonderful. Guy, thank you so much for your time today. Not at all. Thank uh, you. Pleasure. And uh, look forward to uh, finishing the book and reviewing it and looking forward to the next one. Well, I hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, thank you for that, Zach and Guy. Great to hear his answers to those 10 questions. We'll have to do those for each other at some point, I think. Yes, we should. Next month, we're going to do a couple of special podcasts, or um, mm-hmm. next month in August. Maybe we should do that to each other. Yes, that would be good. Or maybe get a guest to interview us. Ooh, that would be fun too. Yes, why not? Let's yes. do that. Let's do that. Elliot Rhodes is the foremost belt brand that seeks to make people see belts in a whole new way and to show them that a great belt is imperative to dressing with style and individuality. With four stores, three in London and one in Japan, Elliot Rhodes belts are bespoke and innovative. They create beautiful luxury leather belts and buckles in a wide variety of colours and textures and styles. They suit all tastes. Check them out at elliotrhodes.com. We should wrap up today's podcast with From the Desk Off, so my and James's thoughts about various mm. different subjects and ramblings. Today we're going to talk about the season here in the UK, a little bit about book festivals, because it's still book month here at The Perfect Gentleman, and hopefully, ah, summer. Yes. <sighs> Despondent size. <laughs> so, for those of you who are not familiar, the season is a period of time in, in the United Kingdom where a, a series of events take place some sporting, some cultural parties and so on and so forth that make up, in inverted commas, the season. It is a period of time where the good and the great go out, show themselves, uh, attend. And in the previous, in historical times, it was when debutantes were shown to the world, uh, young men and women courted to find their respective partners. And the season can include horse races, uh, the Henry Royal Regatta, various different sporting events, usually Wimbledon nowadays, Glyndebourne, 
Melbourne, the Opera Festival, and various other cultural and sporting events. It's now become less of a where people go out and show off to court, and more now about a time, a period where all these things happen. And a number of people come over to the UK to attend a number of these events because they're generally in the same set period of time. And it's an interesting period of British history that still keeps on going. A number of these festivals, like the Glyndebourne or the, the, the horse races, have run for decades, if not centuries. Yep. So the season's been around for a long period of time, and it's an interesting period of British culture. What, do you, what are your thoughts about the season, James? It's fascinating. I used to live very close to Ascot, to the race course, literally the, the bottom of my street back onto the race course. And it was always amazing seeing, during those few days, of the races or sometimes going to, to to Henley for the regatta and just how much fun there is in those big sort of almost like early festivals I guess it's interesting because I think a lot of people shy away from going to some of those events because they think it's a bit too partial it's not for them or whatever but actually the days I've been to to Ascot races a few times to Newbury races to the regatta at Henley I've never had a bad day. It's always been a lot of fun. If you like that sort of event, I would say definitely go along. Yeah, I think it's one of those things. I mean, pick the event that you like the most. You know, whether it's Wimbledon or the Polo, the military tattoo in Edinburgh, Goodwood Festivals, mm-hmm. Speed, yes. with it's all part of the season now. There's oh, a lot so of much things fun. out there in the season. If you just Google the season, it will give you the list of events that partake in the traditional season and then kind of mm-hmm. what's known now known as the modern season. But I would go off and try out a few events at the season this year, if you can. Yes officially part of the season is is book festivals at the end of this month in may not the biggest in the literary sense but probably the biggest uh in the people attending in commercial sense is the hey on why uh book festival and that occurs at the end of may and june Mm -hmm. it's not one where lots of book deals are done there are other conferences for that probably not one of the the high-end literary festivals but it is probably one of the best commercial ones known hey on why is a village in Wales. Beautiful place. It's a beautiful place, exactly. It's a very picturesque religion that has become a centre of books for the United Kingdom. Certainly one thing that, uh, you know, you should go and do if you're a, a bibliophile, if you love literature, if you love books, they tend to get a lot of authors coming mm-hmm. and speaking at uh, the festival, launching their new books, speaking about uh, old books, and they have a broad range of authors. They don't tend to stick to one genre from cookbooks mm-hmm. to fiction to uh, to history and all sorts of interesting things Indeed. that appear at the festival. Indeed. And actually, as a, a slight sidebar to that, Hale and Wise also really, really good for woolen blankets. It's a centre of a part of the wool trade. If you're looking for a gift for someone, uh, a very soft Hale and Wise wool blanket would probably make up for the fact that you've disappeared off to a book festival for a week. <laughs> I think that's a very wise thing. Uh, maybe I'll see you up there. I've gone once. Um, I haven't been back since, so I should go back again. I liked liked it last time I was there. They are a lot of fun. One of the things that I think sort of driven by the success of of Hale and Why is a lot of towns now have poetry and and literature festivals, which are really useful, really enjoyable. I know Durham, close to me, have one. Newcastle, another nearby city, has a poetry festival. Most towns will have them. Often they're quite small or just starting out. But go along, listen to a reading, hear an author talk. Listen to some poetry. It's great. Most authors like meeting their fans um, and engaging with them, so it's a good chance to meet someone that you admire and whose writing you admire. That's very true. I've been to, often just at local bookstores, when an author comes along to do a little reading and sign some books and meet things. It's a lot of fun. You might not want to stay for the long queue and get your book signed, but just hearing an author read their own work is great. There is a website I found which lists 
all or most of the festivals, which is literaryfestivals.co.uk. So it has a calendar and, and breakdowns by subject and by area and things. So if you're interested and you want to go to a festival, that's a good place to start. Thank you for that. That's very good. And lastly, the joys of the summer to come. <laughs> yes. We're now coming to the end of May and summer is ahead of us. And so we're talking now a bit more about summer and what's going on. So for the next few months, we're going to talk a little bit more about summer. We've got our summer issue in the mm-hmm. magazine. It will be June and we'll talk about summer stuff through the month of June. In the month of July, we're going to talk about holidays. We joked in an earlier episode that we don't generally go on holidays because we're self-employed and we work. <coughs> All hours God sends. We do like going on holidays when we do go on them. So we're going to have a whole holiday issue uh, a gentleman's guide to holidays and all sorts of interesting thing and then in august we're going to do something very different something that i've never seen in any kind of men's magazine do we're mm-hmm. going to have a sustainability issue excellent that's, that's a really good idea we're going to do an issue in the whole month about sustainability we're going to do vegan clothing we're going to talk about all sorts of things that are interesting sustainable vegetarian vegan all kinds of interesting things around the green world for gentlemen i, I don't think i've ever seen anything like that no. as a magazine issue dedicated to that it's something i think a lot of the style focus guys steer clear of but it's important I, I look forward to talking about that well i have to give credit where credit is due it was inspired by one of our uh, loyal followers matthew bait who suggested we do something about vegan style so we have taken up the challenge matthew we are going to do something a couple of our new contributors are vegans very happy to lead the charge on this one mm-hmm. we shall see in august so that's the next three months for your listening and reading pleasure so uh, hopefully you'll join us in the magazines and the in the podcasts to come that's great that's kind of about it today james i've kind of got the urge to do some cooking now i think yeah i just i think what shall i whip up next mm. well you're talking about spain i'm thinking maybe a little paella been trying to persuade my other half to teach me her secret to moqueca de pesci, which is a Brazilian spiced coconut stew uh, with fish. At least if I can't persuade her to teach me it, I might persuade her to cook it and then I can watch. I will bribe her with a hay on wire woolen blanket. <laughs> that, 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 that would be good. <laughs> yeah, I actually bought her one a few years ago. The lady in the, in the store called it a kutch which is a wonderful Welsh word for cuddle. A, l- a little cutch blanket. It's lovely. Well, thank you all for listening. Uh, thank you, James, for being a lovely part of our podcast. We look forward to speaking to you next week on episode 12. But from now, it's goodbye from me, Zach Falkland-Barfield. And goodbye from me. Thanks, everyone. Our partners, Hawes & Curtis, are a British brand with more than 100 years of heritage and tailoring. In 1913, Ralph Hawes and George Frederick Curtis opened their first store in London's Piccadilly Arcade at the corner of German Street, renowned for its resident shirt makers. From the beginning, Hawes and Curtis attracted famous clientele, including the Duke of Windsor, Cary Grant and Fred Astaire. Dapper gentlemen all. As a result of Hawes and Curtis's commitment to impeccable service and product excellence, the brand has been awarded four royal warrants. Today, Hawes and Curtis offers extensive menswear and women's wear collections, providing customers with complete looks for a whole variety of occasions. Please head over to their website, www.hawesandcurtis.co.uk. So what's your favourite recipe then? I love chili okay. and chili con carne. I would probably mortally offend any Texans or Southern Americans listening because I'm, I'm sure I don't do it right. But I love getting a lovely, meaty, smoky chili. Mm. Uh, if I can get some, some good chipotle chilies, some good smoked paprika, 
that's one of my favorite things yeah and I, I love a good chili a good chili is mm-hmm. really good I, I started experimenting because when my uh, wife and I went on a health kick a couple of years ago with turkey mince chili that's an interesting thing so because yeah. turkey's kind of very bland as a meat generally trying to give it a bit more oomph with with the chili it's it's quite quite fun I quite often I get turkey steaks or escalops from the supermarket when I'm sometimes when I'm on a flying back from somewhere I normally cook those with paprika and cumin so basically the the main spices of a chili but just lightly dusted and then cooked on a griddle with some onions and some mushrooms and some greens on the side and I quite like that generally I'm with you I think turkey's often a bit meh I'd rather have chicken it is it's interesting I mean roast turkey I like <clears throat> I tried to have it a bit more often than Christmas because I, I do like a good roast turkey it's kind of that, that that's when it's flavoursome yes very lean, very low fat. Yeah, again, I'm not a fan. One thing I have been cooking recently and trying to get better at is fish. I used to always eat fish as a boy. I got out of the habit of it, I think, when I was when I was a younger man because of the hassle and, and doing it. But we have a, a fish man who comes door to door now once every couple of weeks and I get some of his fresh fish and cook that. And I did uh, I did langoustines for the first time the other day. Oh, nice. Yeah, they were. It was lovely. I did, a, I did like a Spanish-style fish... Um, stewed basically a tomato based stew with white uh, fish I think I used hake and then I, I cooked the langoustines and served those alongside and they were lovely mm. really good yum 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 we don't eat a lot of langoustines in the UK which is a shame most of the langoustines fished from the UK go to Spain it's weird considering that historically they used to, we used to eat our fish in the UK mm-hmm. in fact in the Elizabethan time there was you had to eat fish on certain days yes yeah it was the law, and you get fined if you didn't. Yep. When I was much, much younger, there was fishmongers in most high streets, and yep. you know you, you could get fresh fish. Supermarket fish generally yeah. is not good. I'm quite lucky in Newcastle, the city near to me. There's a, it's a, it's an old Victorian covered market. There's four or five good fishmongers there, and I'm not far from the coast, so everything's quite fresh. And we do have this fishman who comes door to door, but a lot of people shy away from cooking fish because it can be a bit of a. It's it's really easy to overcook, especially if you buy your fish unprepared. Or inexpertly prepared, it's not great, which can be one of the problems for supermarkets. But you get a good fishmonger and ask him to to gut and scale and top and tail your fish. Yeah, it's great. No, I, I do like cooking a bit of fish. I, uh, as you said, I thought it was meant to interesting. A good good uh, fish curry is always good. When I was in India in uh, in Chennai, one of the hotels I stayed in had a a really good chef. And I talked to him about fish but because I was unfortunately there at the time when they have a, a moratorium on fishing for two months. And the Bay of Bengal, yes, um, you know, Chennai's famous for its fish, but he had some of his special stores that I suspect might have been bought on the black market. They might have been illegally fished, but it was so delicious. And it very simply spiced steamed fish with salad and like, crispy bread. Delicious. Yeah. Getting a bit hungry now. Yeah, I am getting hungry. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking, what can I whip up for this evening? Good stuff. Good stuff. All right, okay, James. Th- thank you for that. Pleasure. I'll speak to you next week. Indeed. Take care, buddy. Goodbye. This podcast is brought to you by the Perfect Gentleman Group Limited and was edited by Andy Nickel at the Pistachio Palace.